Good morning. It's good to be with you. It's good to be back in Isaiah. It was a great break last week, but it's great to be back in Isaiah. Can you believe we're in Isaiah 50? Um, before I read the text, I just wanted to mention, we know that the breaks in, um, in between the chapters in the Bible were added long after the authors wrote the text. So we don't always follow the exact breaks that, um, that are in the Bible. And this morning's an example of that. We're not sticking perfectly to chapter 50. We're actually going through chapter 50 all the way to verse 8 of chapter 51. We just feel that that's a more cohesive block. It just allows the text to come to a more natural break than uh, the one that was suggested by the early Bible publishers. So... If you would, please stand with me. If you can, please stand and we'll read God's word. And we'll read from Isaiah 50, verse 1, through to chapter 51, verse 8. Thus says Yahweh, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I came, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their coverings. The Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them who wear, will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment." Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. 
Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For Yahweh comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For the law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated and we'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we are not forgotten in the barrenness of this world. Thank you that we are not on the outside looking in, but that through Christ you folded us into the family of God. We pray that you would part the darkness like a curtain and reveal the light that you would speak to us this morning and that we would hear and grab hold of your word to us. Amen. So as we've worked our way through Isaiah, we've, uh, we've seen in this book that there's a, a few different voices that we hear. We hear, I mean, from Isaiah, the, the, the main author, the, the prophet. We hear from his voice as he makes divinely inspired prophecies. It's the first voice. But sometimes Isaiah quotes a certain message directly from God, like at the beginning of chapter 50 here, where he says, thus says the Lord. And we hear from that second voice, from God's voice. And then thirdly, since we've been in the second half of Isaiah, we've heard this unique third voice, the voice that breaks through and provides this hint, this Isaianic clue this bright flashing arrow pointing forward to Christ, the voice of the servant. And so in our passage this morning, we hear from all three of these voices. First, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 50, we hear God's voice. And then in verses 4 to 9, the Isianic clue is growing louder, and we hear the voice of the servant. And then Isaiah jumps in, verse 10 to 11, to close out chapter 50. And then in chapter 51, it kicks off with God's voice again. And these four blocks, these four sections will likely, will largely be the four sections of the sermon. So let's start with this first section in chapter 50, verses 1, 2, and 3. God is still faithful. 
If you can remember back two whole weeks, uh, you'll recall that Pastor James in chapter 49 unpacked God's assurance towards these exiled Israelites who feel lost, abandoned. They're going through a dark season, a season of trial, of anguish, and they've been taken out of their homeland and they're living in exile under the oppressive regime of the Babylonians. And in this darkness, God was offering his assurance in chapter 49. They do not see a way home, but God will make a way. These first three verses here continue along that same vein. God is still faithful. His people are being disciplined, but not abandoned. And as we mentioned already, we see in this section, Isaiah is passing along the words of God, who asks a number of questions here, all leading to the same point. In verse 1, we hear the questions, did I divorce your mother? And then again, did I sell you into slavery? You have to understand what he's asking. Did God divorce Israel? Did he abandon her? Or did she abandon God? What is it? Is God a deadbeat dad who abandoned his children's mother and ran off to pursue his own adventure? Did he run away from the commitment he made? Did he fail as a father? The answer to this rhetorical question is a resounding no. God didn't turn around. They ran away on him. God isn't a loser dad going through a midlife crisis off pursuing a new family with a younger woman. He's not making excuses for a business trip to get out of town for a break from his family. He's not an absentee father. It's the other way around. It's more like his children demanded their inheritance and chased after the excitement of the world. And now they've burned through their inheritance, wasted it on the pursuit of the empty promises of idols, and they're now pining for the steady, reliable provision and protection of the good father they ran off on, the father who raised them out of bondage and set them up in their own land. Go back and look for the certificate of divorce. Look back through the history of these people and pinpoint when God walked out on his family, when he filed for divorce with their mother. If so, there would be a certificate. So where is it? There isn't one. Don't believe this version of the events. Don't believe a revisionist history. God never left them, never abandoned his family. It was them. It was their choice, their transgressions not God's. God didn't send them away. He didn't sell them off into slavery. They enslaved themselves to their own sin by their iniquities. They embraced the bondage for the gratification of their desires. They chose their master. They chose to be a slave to sin. They could have served the master who sets them free. Now, to drive the point home all the more emphatically, in verse 2, God asks, When I called, why did no one answer? 
When I reached out, why did no one grasp my extended hand? Did I not come to you? You were too busy to open the door for me. Did I not reach out to you? Did I not extend my hand? Was the problem that my arm was too short? That's what he asks. Now you just didn't grasp it. You left me hanging. And then in the second half of verse 2, God's charge to the Israelites is this. You ignored God and you went your own way because you didn't think he could follow through on what he promised. You didn't trust in God's ability to provide and keep you safe. So instead, you put your faith in your own abilities, your own strength. And he evokes some of God's past miracles that led to his people's freeing from exile in the Exodus. The implication being that he can do this again to free them from Babylon. Look back and see how you were freed out of Egypt. Remember the plagues like the poisoning of Egypt's drinking water by killing and rotting all the fish of the Nile. Remember the darkening of the sun. Remember the parting of the Red Sea where God made a way where there was no way. It was all darkness to you, but God parted the darkness and showed you the light. But now you think perhaps you'd be better off on your own. It does feel a little bit like a response you would give to a rebellious teenager rejecting his parents. You can hear it, right? My parents are the worst. They've literally never done a single thing for me. <laughs> I'm better off on my own. But despite that, the message to the Israelites in exile is one of comfort. What he's saying is, I never abandoned you. I have been there all along just waiting for you to turn around to come back to me. If I can make a recommendation on how you might spend a small portion of this Lord's Day, maybe this afternoon you would consider taking some time to read through Luke, Luke 15. You can do it as a family. Verses 11 through to the end of the chapter, verse 32. Read the parable of the prodigal son. Because it's the same message, it's the same story. It's just told in a different voice. In Luke 15, we hear the voice of Christ, the suffering servant. And you can go and you can hear from Jesus, who tells you that no matter how far you've wandered away from God, it's never too late to come home. His hand is still outstretched towards you. His arms are still open wide to you. His heart is breaking for your return. His heart is that of the father of a runaway, the heart of a father who long, longs for his child to turn away from their reckless lifestyle of partying, addiction, gambling, sex, whatever it is, a foolish, unsustainable lifestyle that puts them in danger on the path of destruction. He has the heart of a father who will rush out in the middle of the night to pick you up from some seedy hangout the second he gets that call. It's the call he's been waiting for. Daddy, I've messed up. I need you. His answer is always going to be, 
I'll be right there. He's been waiting for the call, so don't put your father through that. Just come home now. Enjoy the comfort of a father who loves you that much right now. Don't stray. Don't put it off. It's time. That's the call that Isaiah extends from God, and it's the voice of Christ in Luke 15. And now we actually hear from that voice now in our passage as well. The servant bursts into Isaiah again in this next section of our passage. It shifts to his voice. Verses 4 to 9, the example of the servant. So this Isaianic clue is not so subtle. In verse 4, we see that the servant sustains the weary with his word. God the Father has given this servant the words to speak to those who are taught to his disciples. And through these words, he will sustain the weary. That's what we read in Isaiah. Does that sound familiar? Maybe like Matthew 11. Who says to his disciples, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In this third servant song of Isaiah, we get a great portrait of the servant. He's coming into focus. And he serves as an example to emulate, to strive towards. Unlike Israel and unlike our own impulses, the servant renews his dependence on God the Father morning by morning. He listens to God's word and he heeds it. He doesn't reject it. He doesn't forget it. He doesn't just ignore it and do the opposite. He follows God's word. He submits no matter the circumstance, no matter the cost. Look at verse 6. It's a picture of suffering, pain, humiliation. Yet he obeys, yet he submits. Yet the word of God still abides. And how? How does he do this? Look at verse 7. With God's help. He submits to God, and God in return gives him help. And he is able to endure. He sets his face like a flint. He is determined with his eyes unwaveringly fixed on the goal. What God has called him to. Back in Luke 9, we read an account of Jesus being rejected. It's nearing the end of his ministry on earth, nearing the time of his crucifixion. But still, his apostles don't understand what Isaiah is saying here. They don't quite get this concept. Jesus was rejected, and so John and James asked Jesus, do you want us to call down fire to rain down on these guys to teach them a lesson? By us, they mean Jesus. He's the one with the power, not them. But you know what they're saying, right? Don't these guys know who we are? They can't speak to us that way. Jesus, are you going to let them speak to us that way? Can we please just burn them to the ground for humiliating us like that? 
But Luke tells us Jesus has already set his face to Jerusalem. He had set his face to far worse, far more humiliating and painful an experience than this rejection. He'd set his face to Golgotha. So no, James, no, John, we are not going to rain fire down on them. We're going to obey God. We're going to endure. We're going to submit, no matter the circumstance, no matter the cost. Jesus sets the example here. He is the way. Even in the darkness and by following him, we're led to the Father. So how can we obey in such circumstances? Verse 7 tells us with God's help. Why? Why should we obey in such circumstances? That's verse 8. Because the one who vindicates me is near. The one who vindicates is near. That actually evokes two different emotions in me. I mean, I, I am relieved that the burden of vindicating myself is not on me. But at the same time, I fear the one who vindicates because I don't deserve any vindication. My own righteousness doesn't hold up. Apart from God, how would I be any different from them? I rejected Jesus over and over until he revealed himself to me. I can't vindicate myself. My own righteousness will not vindicate me. Look, if kryptonite is what defeats Superman, then call the gospel kryptonite because it defeats anyone who thinks of themselves as a Superman. The gospel cannot coexist with a sense of superiority within the same heart. We're no better than the ones who reject Christ. But the one who can vindicate is near, and his righteousness is sufficient. So I yearn for him even as I fear him. But consider also how this impacts the way that we live. What does it matter what anyone else thinks? I have no more fear of man. God is with you. Who cares about those who are not with you? What do I care if my coworkers think I'm nuts? What do I care if they fire me? What do I care if my neighbor hates what I stand for? What do I care if someone leaves a nasty comment on my Facebook page? What do I care if my friends turn their backs on me? What if they take everything I have? They malign me and beat me? If the world rages at my faith and they shun me and cast me off, even if they imprison me or kill me, I have Christ. We don't fear man. We have Christ. We will be vindicated when he returns. In John 6, after many disciples leave Jesus, they abandon him because they find his words just too hard to bear. Jesus asks the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
Those words of eternal life are captured right here in this book for you. If you don't have a copy, take the one in the pew rack in front of you. His word sustains the weary. The caller may not be unknown. Think about it. (laughs) The example is set for us. The servant has come. Follow his example. Follow Christ. Heed his word. Even in the darkness, especially in the darkness. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. This is a call to obey the servant. We have more questions here. God asked the first set of questions. Now Isaiah has his own questions in this section. Verse 10, who fears the Lord and obeys the servant? Who will fear God and therefore obey the one he sent? This is the way of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Randy Alcorn defines the fear of the Lord as a profound respect for his holiness, which includes a fear of the consequences of disobeying him. It's a good definition. Do not follow the way of folly. Her way leads to death and the depths of Sheol, according to Proverbs 9. The example of the servant was a reliance on and submission to God. This is the wise way to live your life. Running out on your good, reliable father and blowing your inheritance on the empty allure of this world is folly. Obey the servant. You see that in verse 10, right? I'm not making it up. Obey the servant. And the servant is Christ, right? Obey Christ. We love Christ our Savior. Sometimes we focused a little too much on Christ our Savior and let that eclipse Christ our Lord. What did Jesus say in John 14, verse 15? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey my commandments. Is that legalism? Is that works-based religion? No. How can I do that? On my own strength? No. Verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Our salvation does not depend on our work, So the work of being a follower of Christ is not daunting. God supplies the help. He awaits with open arms to make his burden light and his yoke easy. Yes, obey Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Be sanctified day by day and grow in likeness to Christ. He is your Lord, and he grants you help. Obey Christ in the darkness of verse 10. You see that in verse 10 also, right? 
Let the one who walks in darkness rely on God. I can be tempted to conflate the darkness of Isaiah 50 here with a darkness in other parts of the Bible, like in John, famously, or even Proverbs. Because darkness is a metaphor, and it can be a metaphor for a couple of different things. In John, it's a metaphor for wickedness. The darkness here is a little different. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 8? I'm stretching now. It spoke back then of darkness as well. I'll help you out. Back when Isaiah was prophesying the exile in chapter 8, it said, The Israelites will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. There's a number of parallels between what Isaiah said in chapter 8 and this one. You see, here the darkness is not wickedness. It's the gloom of anguish. Darkness is anguish. You can't see a way forward. You're in a hard, difficult season. You don't know how to get out of it. The Israelites are in exile, and they need to get to their own promised land. The space between the two is anguish. There's no way from one to the other. Whatever your current circumstances and the inaccessible situation God has called you to, the darkness is the space between the two. It's the kind of darkness that Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 50. It's the darkness we all face in trying times, seasons of anguish. It's not necessarily a result of waywardness. It's just part of life in a fallen world. When the path forward just goes dark. When what stands between where you are and where you need to get is impassable. Impossible. There's no way between the two. For the early Israelites, the darkness between Egypt and their promised land was the Red Sea. For the Israelites in our passage, the darkness between Babylon and Jerusalem is what they are facing. And we know God is sending Cyrus to make a way through. What is the darkness you're facing? It can be illness. It can be a mountain of debt you just can't get out from under. A broken relationship that is irreconcilable. Maybe porn has its hooks in you and you don't know how to get out from that. Maybe a family member's heart remains hardened against the gospel. It's important to recognize that our will is not God's will, but the darkness in the space between where you are and where God wants you to lead you to. When the glimmers of hope extinguish and darkness engulfs us, like it has engulfed the Israelites in exile, then what? Then Isaiah 50 shows us two options. One in verse 10, one in verse 11. Verse 10 We can trust in the name of the Lord, trust in who he is, rely on God and what he has promised. 
God is a way maker. He makes a way where there is no way. He can part the darkness like he parted the Red Sea. Or, in verse 11, we can persevere in our folly. We can light our own fire, kindle our own torches, and go it alone once again. Just keep forging ahead without God. Double down on our folly. Those are our options. Now, the world is a big fan of verse 11. That's the mantra, right? Go ahead. Never give up. Forge your own path. Stay strong. Dust yourself off. Get back up. Keep swinging. I mean, there's an entire industry of motivational self-help that is based on this. Just believe in yourself. Have faith in yourself. But Isaiah shows us what they're really cheering is keep digging your own grave. Isaiah's call here doesn't make it on the New York Times bestseller list. It doesn't fill convention centers. It doesn't get its own motivational speakers or motivational posters. You don't got this. Don't hang on. Stay down. Tap out. Instead, trust in the name of the Lord. Rely on God. Because that's the point of the darkness. It's to draw you closer to him. Don't forget who creates the darkness in the first place. Look back to verse 3. See who it is that covers the sun in sackcloth. God does. And he is the way maker. So draw close to God in the darkness through prayer, through his bride, the church, through his word, the Bible. Draw near. You can fight the darkness. You can kick and scream and go your own way by the light of your own fire, stumbling towards the empty promises of the world. Who will cheer you on to great fanfare? But you're stumbling into thicker and thicker darkness until absolute darkness engulfs you at the end of your life in death. The world will have abandoned you long before then, tucked you out of sight and moved on to their next idol. You can only put off the darkness for so long until it engulfs you. And you're in the grave. And at that point, verse 11 is a promise. If you pursue this option, if you live apart from God, at the end of your life, you will lie down in torment. This is the consequence of disobedience to the servant. Death and torment. So mercifully, our last section provides a stark contrast to the consequences of disobedience. I hope you see now why we couldn't leave it at the end of chapter 50 and we had to sneak into chapter 51 to look at verses 1 to 8. Let's do that now. Verses 1 to 8 of chapter 51, the consequences of obedience. So what do we note in this section? You may note a refrain of righteousness. 
verse 1, 5, 6, 7, 8, it comes back. That's the theme, righteousness. And we also note that we switch voices again. Listen to me, verse 1 exclaims. So who are we listening to now? Verse 2 says, I called him. I called Abraham. So Isaiah is giving voice to God once more, as he did at the beginning of chapter 50. And so God gives us three appeals to obedience, each paired with a beautiful incentive that starkly contrasts the darkness of disobedience. We see these three in verse 1 to 3. God brings life from barrenness. Verses 4 to 6, God brings light into darkness. And then verses 7 and 8, God brings salvation to those who fear him. First incentive, verses 1 to 3. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. You all heard that you were a chip off the old block. So who's the old block? Abraham. We're going all the way back to Abraham. Why? Well, because God made a promise to Abraham, and God doesn't forget his promises. He's no deadbeat. He, his promises are locked in. The promise is in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, sorry, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promise to Abraham was, I will give you so many children that they will make up an entire nation. And through you and your descendants, I will bless all the families of the earth. Even though it's old darkness to you. You don't know where you're going. I haven't told you yet. You don't know how it's possible for this promise to be fulfilled. It's an outlandish promise. You're old. Your wife's barren. You have no clue what to do. You're in total darkness. But if you obey me by faith, I will keep this promise. You have to think about it. I mean, Abram's sitting in his tent, worshiping idols, already old having long given up the idea of having children, would he even have the first inkling as to how to go about fulfilling this on his own? I mean, it didn't stop him from trying. He had a couple of very unhelpful contributions, pretending his wife was his sister, having a child with her slave. Didn't help. But through trials, through seasons of darkness... Abraham's faith was refined. And in the darkest season he faced, in the darkness of having to face the prospect of sacrificing his long-awaited son, Abraham's faith was refined as gold. In that darkness, his faith was completed. And God blessed him with a way, with a sacrificial ram. God is faithful to his promise to this covenant, and even now, he holds fast to this promise to Abraham's descendants. 
He promised he would bring life out of barrenness. And he'll do it. No matter how barren Jerusalem is now, he will turn it to Eden. No matter how barren your heart is now, he will bring life to your heart. In verse 3, we see in the new Jerusalem, the new Eden, there will be joy and gladness, thanksgiving and singing. The new Jerusalem will be prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the first incentive to obey the servant. God is refining your faith in seasons of darkness. And never forget that he is faithful to his promise. Even in the thick darkness, when a way forward seems impossible to you, the God who brings forth life from barrenness will provide the faithful with a way forward. Even a sacrificial lamb. The servant is that one. Christ is the sacrificial lamb slain for you. The second incentive, verses 4 to 6. Look at verse 4. What is this incentive? A light. Which is good when you're in darkness. And what is the light in the darkness? It's God's justice. Might not be what we were expecting. The light at the end of this darkness is God's justice. God's law will be proclaimed, and God's justice will be satisfied. Now, to those who are guilty, justice doesn't sound like light. But light will come to the righteous. Verse 6 tells us not to put our trust in the creation. Anything you see, anything you can touch, it will not endure. It's not trustworthy. It will all dissolve like snow when the new Jerusalem is established. There's nothing in this world you can trust. Nothing that you can see or trust or touch is trustworthy. There's only one thing to trust in. Through obedience to the servant, put your faith in God. His righteousness will never be dismayed. His salvation will be forever. You see that in verse 6. Now, in order for this second incentive to be an incentive at all, we're going to need the third incentive of verse 7 and 8. Because the second incentive of God's justice is only an incentive if we're found righteous. If we have God's righteousness. But how do we do that? That seems impossible. There seems to be no way. Well, the third incentive is for those who know righteousness, whose heart is God's law. Look at verse 7. Who fear not man, but fear God. You see, if you show obedience to the servant in the darkness, God's law is written on your heart, and God's righteousness will be imputed to you. And that is the only way out of the darkness and into the light of God's justice. God's salvation is granted through God's justice by putting on God's righteousness through obedience to the servant, to Christ, by faith. 
in the darkness of this world. Because Christ has all of God's righteousness, and yet he took on all the condemnation of God's justice for our unrighteousness on the cross. Specifically to cancel that condemnation and impart us with his righteousness that we may stand blameless in front of God. So wait patiently and steadfastly in the darkness. Have faith in the God that brings about the dawn every morning whose grace is renewed daily, who supplies the strength, the grace, the justice, the righteousness to whoever waits upon him. Cling to him in prayer and in the word and in fellowship. The point of the darkness is to strengthen that faith in the one who has promised you an impossible promise. He has promised eternal life from your barren heart. You will walk through the anguish of darkness. And the point is to strengthen your grip to the hand of the one who leads you through the darkness, through the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil, fearing only God. And the choice is stark. It's disobedience or obedience. That's the fork in our road. The first path is very wide. It has room for so many who are forging down that path through the darkness by the light of their own sinful impulses to the cheers of man to live their best life, to live their truth and pursue their dreams. And this path leads to death and eternal torment. That's what's at the end of that path. No one has ever found anything other than that at the end of that path, not one. The other path is narrow. It's the path of obedience to the servant, following his example of putting faith in God in the darkness and grabbing hold of his hand and letting him lead the way through the valley of darkness, submitting to him, aligning our will to his, being shepherded by him, trusting in his promises. We accomplish this with the help of God, the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. We accomplish this by trusting in the light of his justice at the end of the darkness, the light that we get to dwell in forever by faith in God's righteousness and by the sacrifice of the servant the sacrifice of his son who took on the penalty for our unrighteousness. I think that it's obvious that Paul, the apostle, spent a lot of time in Isaiah studying the uh, servant songs. And he expands on this concept in Romans. I could cite most of Romans 8, but hear how Romans 6 verses 20 to 23 put it, as an encouragement to followers of Christ. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're not, a, not currently a follower of Christ, I urge you to turn away from the light of your own sinful heart's desires. That light will be extinguished. It will be swallowed up by darkness and death. So turn to the light of Christ. And whether you're a follower of Christ or not, if you find yourself sitting in the darkness today with no idea how to get yourself out of it, you're in the exact right place. There's no better place for you to call on your heavenly father. So don't fear man. Don't fear what those around you will say, but fear God. Reach out to him. Reach out to your brothers and sisters in your church family here. In this place, we bear each other's burdens. Turn to God through Christ. Accept him in your heart that you may be granted God's righteousness. It is yours through the death of Christ on the cross. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray with a psalmist. Lord, seal our hearts with the knowledge that you, God, are for us. In you, Lord, whose word we praise. In you, Lord, we trust. We shall not be afraid. What can man do to us? Help us perform our vows to you, O God. We render an offering of thanksgiving to you. For you have delivered our souls from death, yes, our feet from falling, that we may walk before God in the light of life. Amen.